where you and I might see a wreck, God sees treasure. Where we see a mess, perhaps, God sees a masterpiece in the making. Where we see a ruined people, God sees a redeemed people. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. And Jonathan, today we continue taking a look at Ephesians chapter 1. And many of us, like you just pointed out, we may just be used to seeing the wreck, the mess, the ruin. We don't have that clarity of eyesight like we ought to have or want to have. How do we begin to see the treasure and the masterpiece and the redeemed? Well, in some ways, I think what Paul wants to do is show us just how extraordinarily powerful God is and the kind of power that is at work in the people of God by the Spirit of God. And to help us to see that, he actually takes us right back to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And he said, the God who is able to raise Jesus from the dead, he is powerfully at work in you and in me if we belong to him. And so his power within us is overwhelmingly great and very, very wonderful. And I think some of us who maybe have been walking with Christ for some time can look back. We see seasons of our life where we felt that power and we've recognized that. And other times we're, we're not feeling that. And if we've got someone listening today who says, Jonathan, I, I don't know that I've ever felt that. And I'm certainly not feeling that now, but I want to. I mean, that, that's something that is compelling to me and I want that. How do I get it? Well, I think again and again, what Paul does is he turns our eyes back to Jesus and to the big picture of what God is up to in history and in the church. And he says, you know, God raised Jesus from the dead. He is restoring and renewing a people for himself. And he's got a glorious future set before us. And we're part of that if we belong to Jesus. And so he he really gets us to have our eyes and our mind and our heart caught up in this grand vision. And actually, when we're focused on the Lord Jesus in that way, uh, I think we find that the Spirit of God works in our lives to bring about his good purposes within us. And that's a very thrilling thing and a joyful thing. It is. And that's what we're looking at today as we continue a message we began last time. It's called Eyes to See All That God Has for Us. If you can, grab a Bible and join us in Ephesians chapter 1. Here's Jonathan. Paul prays that these believers will know the hope of God's calling. Next, he prays that they will know the riches of God's inheritance. Verse 18 again. I pray also that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you and the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. That second half of verse 18 takes a couple of reads to get clear. There's talk of an inheritance here, but whose inheritance are we talking about? What is the nature of this inheritance? We learned back in verse 14 that we ourselves are going to receive an inheritance, so maybe the focus here is on something that we will get from God. That could make a lot of sense, but actually as we look closely at verse 18, as we slow down and read it, it seems pretty clear that what Paul is talking about here is God's own inheritance something that God has set apart for himself, namely his saints. It is his glorious inheritance in the saints. The riches that God has set apart for himself in eternity, well, they are his saints. They're his holy, his redeemed people, his church. 
you and I together, we are His glorious inheritance. Now, that's the spiritual reality. That's what the Bible tells us about ourselves. But Paul knows full well that it takes the eyes of faith to see it. It takes the revealing, the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit to perceive it. If you've ever spent any time in England doing some sightseeing, you've probably visited on one occasion a house belonging to an organization called the National Trust. The National Trust was set up a number of years ago in England to preserve historically important houses and estates for the nation. What's tended to happen over the last century or so is that families who have inherited some of these very great country estates have found that maintaining and heating and, and, and caring for and paying tax on these enormous places, places that are generally very run down, it was just too much, and they needed to get rid of them. And so the National Trust was set up to take ownership and responsibility for these places and then open them up for the public to enjoy. And what typically happens is that the trust will take ownership of a place, and when they do, they will have to spend a number of years restoring the house to its glory, restoring the structure, the aesthetics, the furniture, the gardens, so that when they're done, the place looks like it did in its glory days 200 years ago, 300 years ago, 500 years ago. And you can just imagine a family, I'm sure this has happened many times, a family hands over the keys to one of these great houses. It was a wreck when they did so. The bills were piling up. The roof was leaking. The carpet was threadbare. The garden was a wilderness. It was an inheritance that they didn't particularly want. They hand over the keys to the National Trust, and the trust then takes the keys, closes the place up for a number of years, restores it, and then open it up. And a few years later, the family come to visit and see what's taken place. And they are struck by the beauty of the inheritance that they had. A beauty, perhaps, that they never saw, they never perceived. It was a crumbling wreck when they handed it over, but now it is a glorious treasure. It takes the eyes of faith to see the glory of God's inheritance in the saints. It takes the eyes of faith to appreciate the treasure that God has set apart for Himself in His people. If we look out at the church of Jesus Christ, if we look out at the people of God, if we observe ourselves, we see something that is very much less than perfect. We see the cracks, don't we? We see the blemishes. We see the damage. We see the cost. We see the inconvenience. We see the frustration. We see the pain. And sometimes we really struggle to see the value and to see the beauty. We see sin. We see conflict. We see divisions. We see discord. We see immaturity. We see hypocrisy. And we easily wonder what is so special about us. What's so special about me? What's so special about the church? But here's the spiritual reality where you and I might see a wreck. God sees treasure. Where we see a mess, perhaps, God sees a masterpiece in the making. Where we see a ruined people, God sees a redeemed people. And in His eyes, it's glorious. It's beautiful. It's an inheritance. It's a treasure. I think it's very easy to become discouraged with the church, with the people of God, with ourselves. And maybe that is where you are at the moment. Maybe that's exactly how you're feeling this morning. You feel you've been hurt maybe, or you've been let down, or you're aware of the ways in which you failed others. 
You see the inconsistencies, you see the weaknesses, you see the failures, and you do wonder, is this project worth investing in? You wonder whether it would be simply better to privatize your faith, to practice it on your own, as so many others have tried to do, without all the complications of church, without the disappointments and the risks that come with community. When we were living in London, I was walking down our street one day, and I I went past a house where they were doing some pretty major renovations, and there was a whole lot of stuff out at the side of the road ready to be loaded into a dumpster and to be cleared away. And sitting right there was a very messy and very scratched up and faded chest of drawers. It looked a total mess, and it seemed pretty appropriate that it was heading to the junkyard, but I looked at the shape of it, and I thought, this thing used to be a pretty nice piece of furniture. I think this used to be an antique at one point in time. So I asked one of the guys on site if it was just going to the junkyard, and, and, you know, if it was, could I just grab it? He said, yes, we're just about to break it up, actually, and throw it in the dumpster there. Take it if you want it. It's yours. In the end, he actually helped me carry it into the house. I don't think Gemma was that delighted to see this thing coming in. Anyway, the long and the short of it was this. After a few hours of polishing and buffing and filling in some scratches, it came up really quite beautifully. It had these big black handles on it. I didn't know what they were made of, wood or rubber or something. They weren't very pretty. Uh, But it occurred to me that they might just be brass under there. So we got some brass polish, and after many, many, many coats of polish and a lot of rubbing, they came up beautifully, sparkling brass. And it turns out that this thing actually is an antique, perhaps from the 1820s or so, and it is just beautiful. It really is. It was so nice, we decided to bring it with us here to Canada. When we moved, we didn't want to leave it. But it took a a bit of an eye of faith, I think, to see it. You had to look beyond the scratches and the tarnish to the treasure below. Paul prays that the eyes of our heart may be enlightened in order that we may know, in order that we may see the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. Yes, church is messy. It's messy. Yes, church can be frustrating. Yes, there are some pretty big scratches and cracks. Yes, there's sometimes more tarnish than there is shine. Yes, the beauty is marred, but the church of Jesus Christ is beautiful. It's glorious. It is God's treasured possession. And if you and I are going to delight in being the church, if we're going to invest in serving the church, if we're going to bear with the failings of one another, the failings of the church, the failings of the people of God this side of heaven, we need to be given these eyes of faith to see its beauty, to see the beauty of a lost people restored by the sheer grace of God, the beauty of a defiled people cleansed by the blood of Christ, a dead people given life by the Spirit of the Lord. The beauty of former enemies made friends, of former strangers made brothers and sisters in Christ, of resentful people turned grateful people, of greedy people turned generous people, of selfish people learning Christian service. It is beautiful, but it does take the 3D glasses of the eyes of the heart, the eyes of faith to see it, And Paul keeps praying that the Ephesians will see it. And you and I need to keep on praying that we ourselves and all of us together would see it. And seeing it, delight in it. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths and a message called Eyes to See All That God Has for Us. 
It's part of a larger series where we're taking a look at the unsearchable riches of Christ. Well, I hope that you've been benefiting from listening to Jonathan's teaching. If you have, we'd love to hear about that. You can always give us your feedback by coming to our website. It's EncounterTheTruth.org. Click on the contact link. Let us know where you're listening and what difference it's making in your life. Again, that's EncounterTheTruth.org and click on the contact link. Let's get back to the message. Once again, here is Jonathan. Paul prays that we'll know the hope of God's calling, the riches of his inheritance in the saints, and finally, the greatness of his power, verse 19. He wants us to know God's incomparably great power for us who believe. When we were first married, we bought a used car that we really liked. It was an old Audi, bright red in color, lots of personality. We called it the Red Rocket. Anyway, it ran really well for a few months. And then it developed some kind of problem with the acceleration. I think it was an electrical problem of some kind. In any case, when it decided that it was going to misbehave, you basically just couldn't get it to produce power. You could put your foot all the way down and not much happened. We mainly bought the car for my commute to and from the train station to get to work. And between our house and the train station, there was a really big hill. (laughs) Our house was at the top of the hill and the train station was, was down below. It was always fine getting down the hill in the morning on the way to work. That was always fine, but getting back up the hill at night was a very different matter. If it was a good day, you'd be basically fine, but on a bad day, it would be a bit of an adventure to see if you would actually make it to the top of the hill. I'd try and build up a little bit of momentum at the bottom, just something to carry me through, and I'd hope for the best. But some days, on bad days, the car would be choking and sputtering and and shuddering pretty badly by the time I neared the top, and I'd just be glad to be home in one piece. If you and I have any experience of trying to live the Christian life for any length of time, we will have an acute awareness of our own weakness, of our own inability. I hope you know and you recognize something of that. The sinfulness of our hearts is very profound. The determination of the evil one to derail us, it is very strong. The enticements of the world around us, they are very real and they are very alluring. And we're weak to resist those things. We're prone to sin. The realities of sufferings and of trials, they are very, very pressing, and we're easily overwhelmed. The needs of the church, the Great Commission task before us, it's all very big, and we are very limited. If we're at all realistic about the Christian life, we should be acutely aware of our own powerlessness to do and to be what God has called us to be. I think we actually become more aware of these things as we go on in the Christian life, more conscious of our weakness, more conscious of our need. I think that's actually a sign of growing maturity. And so it's perfectly natural for us to look at the mountains before us, the realities of resisting sin, of serving the Lord, of enduring through trial, and to wonder, is there enough power under the hood to get me up that very, very big hill? Am I going to make it? Are there sufficient resources available to me for this? And we can be quite convinced when we ask that question in a difficult time that the answer is no. I am going to stall before I reach the top. I can't endure. I can't push on. I can't make it. And so Paul prays earnestly that we will see spiritual reality with the eyes of faith. 
In particular, he prays that we will see the extraordinary power of God for us who believe. The power, end of verse 19, that is like the working of his mighty strength. That is a very great power. He piles on power words there just to make the point. And in case we're not familiar with that power, he goes on to tell us about its nature and about its scope, its force, its potential. The power that is available to you and available to me is the power, verse 20, which God exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but in the age to come. It's a very great power. What kind of engine is under the hood? What kind of power does God have? What kind of power does He make available to His people, His saints? It is the kind of power, says Paul, that takes a man crucified by the Romans and laid in a tomb, that takes the most humiliated outcast from contemporary society, that takes a thoroughly dead man, a really dead man, and not only raises him from the dead, not only performs this unfathomable, history-transforming miracle of resurrection, but takes that man from the grave and raises him up even to heaven itself, taking him from the place of shame and of humiliation and powerlessness in the grave to the place of of supreme authority and glory on high, to the place of highest honor in all the universe. So that now this man who was recently crucified, recently laid in a grave, is set above every other power and every other name that is given. Those who follow golf will be remarking at Tiger Woods' amazing comeback from a ruined career to the heights of victory. He's climbed over a thousand places in world golf rankings in just a year. It is a pretty remarkable comeback for what it is. But think of this comeback. Descended from heaven, living as a man, executed as a criminal, laid in a grave, that's the bottom, but risen to life, exalted on high, seated at the Father's right hand. Now, the power that achieved that, that took Jesus from the grave and pulled him all the way to heaven itself, that power is truly powerful. And it is that very same power, verse 19, that is at work in us who believe. Now, remember who we are. Paul wants us to see that God's mighty power is available for us as his saints, as his redeemed people. He's gone on a little sidetrack here in verses 20 and 21 to tell us about the greatness of that power, reminding us of what it achieved in Christ. But in verses 22 and 23, he rounds out the thought and he comes back to us. And he tells us something very, very wonderful as he closes out this thought. Verse 22, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. They're poetic words. They're beautiful words, and we read over them quite quickly. But they are truly awe-inspiring. What's Paul saying? God has placed everything under the feet of Jesus, all his enemies, every force in the universe subject to him. God made Jesus head over everything on earth and beyond earth, and he has done it for the church. In setting Jesus above all other things, God has purposed to bless His people, to do profound good to the church. 
somehow in ways I don't think we're fully going to grasp this side of heaven, all this work of God in Christ is for the church. It is for our good, for our benefit, for our blessing. And this church, which is so privileged, so blessed, is Jesus' own body, verse 23. The risen Christ, the ascended Christ, He lives in us by His Spirit. Jesus fills everything in every way, says Paul, but in a unique and a special and a particular way, He indwells and He fills His people. The greatest force behind the greatest drama in the history of the universe is at work among us and within us. The Spirit of the risen Christ dwells within me and within you if you belong to Him. Can I resist sin? Can you resist sin today, this week? In and of ourselves, not a chance. (laughs) We'll sputter and we'll stall and we'll roll backwards down the hill. But the God who raised Jesus from the grave and seated Him on high, He can resist sin. And He fills us. And He lives within us. Can I find strength to serve Christ, to serve His people, to make Him known in a disinterested world, a sometimes hostile world? Not very likely. Not in my own strength. But the God who lives within us by His Spirit, well, He has power lots of it. He has mighty strength, and He can do what I could never do, what you could never do. Can I endure? Can I keep trusting the Lord, walking with Him in the midst of trial, in the midst of suffering, of sadness, of opposition, of disappointment, of grief? No. No, I I don't think I can, and I don't think you can either. But the Spirit of the risen and ascended Christ, He is powerful beyond measure, and He can do what you and I cannot do. But here's the thing. It takes the eyes of faith to see these things. It takes the eyes of the heart opened by the Spirit of God to believe them. We're naturally blind to them, and we easily lose sight of them. And so Paul prays. He prays earnestly that God by His Spirit might enlighten the eyes of our heart, that we might see and believe these things, and so live in the good of them each day. And how much we need to pray that very same thing for ourselves and for one another. Jonathan Griffiths here on Encounter the Truth, wrapping up our message, Eyes to See All That God Has for Us. Part of our series, The Unsearchable Riches of Christ. Today, really taking a look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. If you missed any part of today's broadcast or the first half of this message in our previous broadcast, you can always go to our website and you can listen online. The website address is EncounterTheTruth.org. That's EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, we're able to bring you Jonathan's teaching on this station each day because of your generosity. We are listener-supported, and as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to say thank you by sending you Jonathan's new book. It's called God Alone, His Unique Attributes, and How Knowing Them Changes Us. So there's a question built into that title right there, Jonathan. How does knowing God's attributes change us? Well, knowing God as He has made Himself known in Scripture is 
really the greatest need of the human heart. We were made for relationship with God. We were made in his image and we were made for his glory. And if we live life without reference to him and without knowing him, our lives are profoundly empty and we are without direction. But of course, learning who God is and what he is like, learning who he is in himself, that has profound effects for the practicalities of our lives, because if we shape our lives and the priorities of our lives around him, then we will find that we are living for something beyond ourselves. We are living for his glory and his honor. We are living in trust of him. We learn what true faith is because we have faith in the God who is all-powerful and all-knowing, the God who is eternal, the God who is truly glorious. So if we are to live rightly in this world and if we are to live properly as disciples of Jesus Christ, as worshipers of God, we've, we've got to know who God is. And that's what this book is all about. Well, we would love to send you a copy of this book as our way of saying thank you for supporting this ministry financially. You can give a gift right now by going to our website, EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 833-998-7884. That might be easier to remember as 833-99-TRUTH or again, our website is EncounterTheTruth.org. For Jonathan Griffiths, I'm Steve Hiller. Thanks for listening and I hope you'll join us next time.